Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I speak to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Tracy Crouch, the Conservative MP for Chatham and Aylesford, and as of the past month, a record-breaking member of the Women's Parliamentary Football Team. Since entering Parliament in 2010, Crouch has earned her reputation for being an independent-minded Conservative. She has rebelled on a range of issues, from press regulation to fox hunting. Crouch served as a sports minister until November, when she quit to take a stand over her government's stance on fixed-odds betting terminals. In protest at the government's refusals to speed up plans to curb fixed-odd betting terminals, Crouch said, Two people will tragically take their lives every day due to gambling-related problems, and for that reason as much as any other, I believe this delay is unjustifiable. The Archbishop of Canterbury praised her actions at the time as principled and courageous. May God bless her commitment to doing right. So with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I think the first time we've introduced a a podcast guest by quoting the Archbishop of Canterbury. I have to say, I nearly fell off the sofa when I saw that he had tweeted me. I mean, it's sort of kind of, surely I've banked some good God points in that perspective. (laughs) Useful. Um, Now, on this podcast, we like to start by talking about what you're doing before your current career as an MP. So when it comes to your early life, you grew up in Kent, where you say you lived in an estate where it was mainly boys and you got to play some football. I got to play a lot of football. The the estate that we moved to, my parents divorced. There was only me and my sister uh, as girls. And basically, they weren't going to come and play dollies with us. Not that we were particularly dolly girls anyway. So we just played a lot of sport. And football was really the main sport. Although I did everything from skateboarding, beer mixing, fishing, canoeing. Basically, if you could kick it, throw it, jump it. I was doing it. When it comes to your childhood, you said previously, and you touched on there, that you were brought up in a single parent household. Your mother worked as a social worker and she struggled to sometimes make ends meet on that wage. Would you say you had a happy childhood? Oh, very much so. I mean, mum was sort of kind of really hardworking, wanted us to basically do well. We learned to be quite self-sufficient quite early on. I think actually... Uh, now we look back and grateful for that you know I could make a cheese sauce at about the age of nine for a lasagna so it's sort of kind of that's a lesson that you you never forget and I think when you go off to university and you start cooking for yourself you know for many it's a big thing for me it was just something that was quite ordinary. And was politics discussed much when you were growing up? Never Never. My, my politics was just not a subject in the family. I would say my late gran, who I absolutely adored, uh, she was quite interested in politics. And her sister's husband, so my great uncle would have been, he was very interested in politics. I remember having a conversation which has gone down a sort of kind of family legend about me asking why he read The Guardian and, you know, did that make him an evil socialist? I mean, where I even got that from, I have no idea. But what age? I'm about 15. <laughs> but no, um, my parents were neither interested in politics or sports, so how I ended up as sports minister is a bit confusing for everyone. And you ended up studying at Hull University, Law and Politics. So were you involved in student politics what, what what point did you start, I suppose, to identify as a conservative? Well, actually, at school, during my A-levels, really, I think I started to identify as a, as a conservative. I was doing my A-levels during 1991 to 93, so it was sort of kind of quite a interesting period in political history, although sort of kind of compared to now, you know, discussions on Maastricht and everything that happened there were positively lightweight compared to what's happening these days Um, absolutely I mean I feel sorry for the students of the future I mean I had it easy just looking at Maastricht you know we had 
a really good politics uh, teacher who engaged with us on various issues. And I think politics, it was very different in those days. The the choices were quite simple between a sort of John Major, One Nation Conservatism and Neil Kinnock's kind of, you know, evil socialism. So, you know, when you're a grammar school girl in Kent, it, it, the choices were, I think, much more simple than they are today. And the Conservative Party at that time, you know, very much sang to me and, you know, everything that they stood for. And they were being led by a man who had quite a similar background to me and had made it to be Prime Minister. And so, again, there was that kind of personal connection. I always joke that there was an element of home rebellion in it as well, in that my mum was just one of those really annoyingly cool mums. You know, she all your friends liked her and she let you smoke and do things and, you know, go to discos and everything else and but if she was to identify as anything it would have been a liberal democrat and certainly not a tory as a social worker so you know i i sort of kind of make a joke about how the fact that i just did it to really annoy my mum has she come around to your way of thinking at all she's got older you mean (laughs) yes actually do you know i don't think she's ever really revealed how she votes um i know that she lives in a neighbouring constituency to mine, um, which is also a conservative constituency and confuses everyone by putting a poster of Tracy Crouch in her window at election time rather than that of her own MP. But uh, I think that's just good old motherly support. I think that's good dedication. Um, so then at what point did you decide you wanted to seek a career in politics? And by that, I don't mean yet becoming an MP because you, after university, you went as a parliamentary researcher. So was that on your mind during university? So all of my friends, my family say that, yeah, you wanted to be an MP from the age of whenever. I genuinely don't recall this. I knew I was politically interested, but I never had any ambition, I think, to be an MP, certainly not a prime minister, although I literally had a blazing row with my sister the other day who (laughs) swears that I declared I wanted to be prime minister, which, by the way, I definitely do not. But I worked for Michael Howard. I did some work experience with Michael Howard when I was a student and really got sort of kind of taken in by the constituency work that Michael did. I was an activist uh, in his association as a teenager and, you know, just sort of kind of got gradually involved. When I went to university, I was one of the very few openly Tory students in Hull University. So what was um, the Hull University politics scene like? I feel that we often hear about Cambridge and Oxford, you know, and everyone being who is now in the cabinet, you know, being contemporaries. So what was it like where you were? The complete opposite opposite I mean I I was at um, university with people like Aisha Hazaraki and we did the same course and Sean Kemp who was Lib Dem special advisor to Nick Clegg we were in the same hall of residence and so you know I was you know quite often the only conservative I remember being chased by the Socialist Workers Party across the gangway into the law um, law buildings, basically, and hiding in the room of the Bolshevik jurisprudence professor, thinking they'll never find me here, which they didn't. But um, I think they, you know, he was considered left wing by the Socialist Workers Party, but sorry, right wing, should I say, by the Socialist Workers Party. But, yeah, it was a bit crazy. So then you went to Parliament and that was your first job after university? It was. We had a visiting Tory MP. I was supposed to be doing my forms for law school and he uh, came to speak to us and I just casually asked if he'd like to give me a job Um, and did I know that that morning his researcher had resigned so I sent my CV and three days after my last law uh, exam I was working in Parliament. 
And then from that, you had a stint working for in PR for Harcourt. Yeah, that right. Um, but then from that, you spent a lot. You spent a lot of your career, if right, working for the Conservative Party. A lot of as chief of staffs, a lot of the time in. No, I, I definitely spent more time outside yeah. of politics. So I did two years. I straddled a year each side of the 1997 election working for, well, one Tory MP who survived the cull um, in 97 and four previously to that who did not. And then I went into public affairs lobbying. And then in 2003, I was poached back in to do chief of staff role. And then I left again in 2005 to work in the city. And you mentioned the one MP that survived that car he'd been working for. What was it like after that landslide for Labour being in a Conservative Party, which seemed like it was really out of power, with with no clear route back in? Well, that one MP that survived was Michael Howard. Um, And so we had immediately the leadership election, which was a brutal experience for Michael and those who supported him. And uh, although, in fact, the vast majority didn't. And then... um, that I remember sort of kind of visiting MPs coming in to see Michael and there was a real sense of, you know, they'd been victims of a plane crash and I think it was half of them, but it also felt half of those who had survived the plane crash. You know, there's a, there was a real sort of kind of guilt um, mentality for quite a lot of time after the 1997 election that people had survived it. it was really bizarre times. But, you know, still really fascinating for me. I still learned a lot from Michael. I still continue to learn a lot from Michael. And you were still inspired to become an MP? I was. I mean, how crazy was that? But again, actually, it wasn't so much the parliamentary things that were keeping my interest in in politics alive. It was actually looking to see what an MP does in their constituency and the difference that they can bring to communities. I've never thought that, you know, MPs can change the world but they can change the world the worlds of people that they represent and I think that's sort of kind of you know what drives me to get up every day. So you worked as the head of public affairs for Aviva and then what point did you decide to go through the selection process and actually go for it? Well I'd already been put on the list in the early 2000s I can't remember when I didn't make it onto the A list a point that I regularly make to Bernard Jenkin who was in charge at the time but um, it was actually the night of 2005 when I watched Justine Greening get elected and I thought that's it that's the last time that I am not going to be standing on a podium somewhere I didn't necessarily expect to um, get a seat that I could win straight away and I had never been a councillor before but as soon as the 2005 election had, had passed and I was back working in the city, I'd made it my intentions very clear to Aviva that this is what I want to do. And they were incredibly supportive. Um, and I was selected in November 2006 for Chatham and Aylesford. And then when you got to Parliament, what surprised you at seeing it as an MP? That's a hard question. I don't think anything really surprised me. I was surprised with how many of my new colleagues had never been to parliament before I remember standing in the chamber with one who said gosh it's a lot smaller than you think it is and I said have you never been here before to which the answer was no and uh, so I was genuinely quite surprised by that I was surprised with she how how much harder it is to make a speech in the house of commons chamber than people think it is and thankfully the days of you know where you stand up and you make 
speeches without any notes has long passed. In fact, I remember seeing, you know, Nicholas Soames, the grandson of arguably one of the finest orators that we've had in this country, reading a speech from notes. And I thought, well, if it's good enough for Winston Churchill's grandson, it's good enough for me. So um, that gives you a bit of a comfort blanket. And... On entering Parliament, you earned a bit of a reputation for being, I suppose, I don't know if rebellious is the right word, but I suppose for being independent-minded on a range of issues. So I think some examples were you abstained on the vote on tuition fees, you voted against the Badger Curl, against, you're very clearly against fox hunting. Um, did you not feel pressure having got there, I suppose, to curry favour in the way that lots of ambitious MPs do by towing the party line? Not really. I my first rebellion was the abstention on tuition fees and again there are always people around you that are wise and and able to give you advice and I felt very strongly on it and I had been told quite famously now by the Chancellor that if I didn't support the government on tuition fees I wouldn't be a minister in that parliament which was not necessarily the right thing to do because next time I wanted to rebel and that was used against me I was like well you've already used that you can't kill me twice so in many respects it was quite liberating having done it I could then you know actually rule out any ambition for the first five years and actually frankly to be honest with you I was always of a view that you shouldn't over promote people too early that people ought to serve their time on the back benches, get to understand procedures, get to understand some of the real sort of kind of technical nuts and bolts. So frankly, I was never really seeking ministerial office anyway. Having been told that I wasn't going to get it, I was like, fine, I'll just get on with doing what I wanted to do then. Did you ever look at some of the people I suppose who entered at the same time who were perhaps moving up the ladder quite quickly and think, oh no, should I be doing that? Or did you feel quite assured by your plan? I was quite assured. And what I actually found really funny was that, you know, there were lots of colleagues who had always been persuaded against rebelling despite that their, you know, views were to the contrary. And then I eventually got promoted before them. (laughs) So it just kind of proves that it was all a bit rubbish, really. Actually, I got some really good advice. So I got some advice... Again, Nicholas Soames gave me some fantastic advice, which was do what you think you must do, but don't go on the TV and sort of kind of shout about it, which I thought was some good advice. Ian Duncan Smith said to me, and this was bearing in mind back in 2010, I think it's very different now, that um, the three most rebellious MPs in Tory party history were Winston Churchill, Harrod Macmillan and Ian Duncan Smith. So... You know, bear in mind they'd all been leaders of the party. It sort of kind of made you realise that actually it's not necessarily going to be the end of days. And you mentioned then that you did receive a promotion, not in that parliament, but after the 2015 election when the Tories had won a majority and you were made a minister for sport. Were you surprised? <laughs> I was a little bit, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it was... Did you very, speak to the Chancellor? It was rather wise, I think, of David Cameron and George Osborne to bring me onto payroll, um, although it did annoy quite a few colleagues. I guess I'm surprised at the promotion. I wasn't surprised at the position that they offered because it is the only position that I would have wanted and it was the only position that I would have taken. And even then I didn't say yes straight away, much to the annoyance. I now discover of David Cameron's former chief of staff, Ed Llewellyn, who I made to wait 29 minutes uh, before I said yes. I'll call you back. I did. I basically said, am I allowed to think about it? And which the Prime Minister said, well... uh, 
I'd rather you said yes now, but yes, you've got half an hour. Um, <laughs> no, people don't normally do this. <laughs> well, no, also, I it, it was one of those really torturous promotions as well. I do kind of feel a little bit sorry for the Downing Street staff because they they tried to contact me on the Monday and I actually thought it was a joke. So I genuinely didn't believe that they were trying to contact me. And then I was reassured by an insider that I really was on a list. And they, by the time they got through to me, I was already back in Kent. So I couldn't do the, um, the totty walk down Downing Street. So I said, I'm sorry, I'm back in Kent. And then I got a call the next morning saying, could you see the Prime Minister at nine o'clock this morning? To which I said, well, no, I can't actually, because I'm about to take a couple of days break down in, uh, in Dorset. And so, and eventually I got a text message saying, will you answer your phone? The Prime Minister is trying to get hold of you. But the signal in my house is so bad that I actually had to go and lean out of my bedroom window at the top before I could eventually speak to him. And then I asked for half an hour. I think that's the definition of hard to get. Yeah. <laughs> I've been on I think I've been in parliament on the on a night for reshuffle when it ran strange as you see everyone trying to act cool but like refreshing their phones yeah. just making sure it hasn't gone wrong and and there are many cruel colleagues and I may or may not have been in that category once upon a time where we would ring overly ambitious parliamentarians pretending to be Downing Street um, I've heard about people doing this yeah. unknown number hence why I actually thought that I was then the victim of this <laughs> because I'd done it in the past to other colleagues then in 2017 you had something added to your brief um, which was minister for civil society yes there was a bit restructured we had the snap election and um, rob wilson who had been the minister for civil society had said he lost his seat in reading and so i was reappointed and tourism and heritage was taken out of the brief and civil society was added into the brief and you led a government-wide group on loneliness which i think is a so to say a cause that you have well, not champion loneliness, but champion tackling loneliness. Absolutely. I mean, I'd been active on the issue of older people's loneliness prior to becoming a minister. And I have to say it was one of the most humbling experiences being asked by the Prime Minister to lead the cross-government work on loneliness because, of course, it was all being done in memory of Jo Cox and the work that she had done. And it was one of those issues where there was just absolute universal acceptance that we needed to do something and I was being contacted by ministers from around the world and visited by you know, people as far away as Japan and New Zealand and Canada and oh, it was just incredible. And now I want to talk briefly about Brexit. Oh because, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Brexit because, with balls. <laughs> exactly. Um, because, not balls to Brexit as the Lib Dems like to do. One of the things that does stand you out is you're one of two Conservative MPs to have never said how you voted in the EU referendum. I think it's you, yourself and Jesse Norman. So just for listeners, I mean, I think it seems almost like a foreign concept, so I'm not saying how they what they think about Brexit because every time you turn on any channel or we have anyone on this podcast they want to tell you what they think of Brexit so why didn't you? Well I was on maternity leave at the time of the campaign so I never felt pressured as an MP to be part of either side although I was being called by either side to ask to come out for them and I, I, I genuinely didn't make up my mind to the very last minute but what I did see was that there were friends and members of my own family who had very, very different views, and it was becoming incredibly fraught and tense, had a very good close circle of friends uh, in the village that I live with, with different views, and it had ripped them apart. And then it sort of kind of, I, the problem with being an MP is that people quite often look to you for advice and guidance on 
what it is that you know you how they should be voting in in big issues like this and I remember having a conversation with a lady in the street while I was pushing a push chair she was saying well how should I vote and I was like well you should vote how you think you should you know what is right what is right for you what is right for your family what is right for your grandchildren and so on and actually I just recognized that it was actually a deeply personal decision and then once the vote was done I just never really felt compelled about sort of kind of saying how I had voted because in many respects for the first time I didn't vote as Tracy Crouch MP I voted as Tracy Crouch you know somebody who was thinking not just about the constituency and the country although obviously they featured in my thinking but also the mum the wife the daughter the sister and everything else and actually I just decided I didn't really want to tell anyone to this day you know my mum doesn't know how I voted my sister doesn't know how I voted my other half doesn't know how I voted people can make good guesses but we just never told each other and we moved on with our lives do you have many constituents asking you how you voted or do, i mean i i suspect that and we've seen with the press as clearly this hunger to know but i wonder if it's something that when it comes to your constituents they want to know no, how not you really not really i think i've had a couple but to be honest with you, i've said to people you know make an assumption or you know look at how i vote in parliament i voted for you know back in the 2010-15 parliament i voted for a full audit of the european union budget i voted for us to have the referendum it's subsequent to it i have you know supported no deal brexit i've voted against eu extension every time i came around to supporting withdrawal agreement as the only means of actually getting out of of, of the european union so yeah. i think you can say i'm a eurosceptic and do you and Jesse ever confide in each other about being no. the two MPs don't tell anyone? <laughs> no, we've never we've never done that. Um, but uh, but I think we have a secret pact. Um, but I do. I mean, I do wonder why. I mean, I look at colleagues who are in heavily sort of leave voting constituencies who, for whatever reason, felt compelled to you know declare that they were voting Remain, for example. And then I see them now getting all pressure as to, well, we don't trust you to deliver because you voted Remain or the other way around. And I just think, you know, it's. I think that's really hard for, for colleagues. And I don't have that same level of pressure. Now, what I wanted to touch on before we move on to, I suppose, current affairs and a bit more football, was just your resignation, which we talked about in the introduction of this podcast. And I think just for listeners, if you could just explain what prompted you to resign. We touched on it, it was to do with fixed or betting terminals, something, a cause that was close to your heart. Um, I'd worked for three and a half years on the review of gambling. Um, it'd been a very long process had engaged with many stakeholders on a whole variety of issues to do with gambling. But one in particular that really sparked public interest was the issue of uh, stakes on fixed or betting terminals, FOBTs, as they're known for short, B2s, as they're I known know technically. I know to say it out loud, the FOBTs. I know, so. don't worry, my other half calls it FOBTs, um, which I now think he actually does on purpose to annoy me. You could put a £100 stake on a spin that lasted 20 seconds, so you could effectively lose you know, £300 in a minute. And 75% of new bookmakers that were being opened were being opened into private communities. The profits from these machines were making well over 50% profits for the for the bookmakers. You know, it is clear that they were a machine that was driving a lot of revenue into the industry. But they were also causing enormous uh, damage to people's lives. People were losing a significant amount of money. That in itself was causing 
enormous harm to wider families and communities in society. And so having gone through a review process where we looked at all the evidence and we were aware of all the evidence and the impact that it could have on the high street, we decided to cut the stake to £2. And I, to this day, I have absolutely no regrets in doing that. But then what happened was that where we had assumed that the because we'd made the policy decision to cut the stake, but because it's a duty issue, the Treasury have to be the ones that implemented it and therefore it was going to be in the budget. We'd made the assumption that it was going to come in in April, following conversations that we'd had with the Treasury, but the Chancellor decided to delay it till October. Now, had that not changed, and we're still in this Brexit kind of, you know, scenario that we're in now... I don't think that stake would a change would have come in in October either. So making sure that it was done as soon as possible was the priority. And Philip Hammond clearly at first didn't listen, but it did prompt action and it prompted lots of backing from your from your colleagues. Then at the Parliamentarian Spectator Awards, we awarded you resignation of the year. I think it was it was one of two resignation awards. Um, yeah, it was. I mean, okay, well, there have been so many resignations. It must have been really yeah, hard we, for you to decide. <laughs> we had to do a last minute meeting to sort you on as well. But you flipped the bird at Philip Hammond over it. So I was I was wondering... I was channeling my inner Baroness Trumpington who had died that week. So, I mean, I think we ought to just put it in context. I sort of kind of... I know I grew up on an estate, but I'm not sort of kind of sweary Tracy that just goes around, you know, sticking fingers up at Philip Hammond. Have you since made peace or spoken with the Chancellor on the issue? We've not had a conversation about this issue. We've had conversations about other issues. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, he's still Chancellor and... Kent still needs money for its infrastructure growth. But, I mean, I, I have no strong desire to be best buddies with Philip Hammond. The departing Philip Hammond. And I was just wondering... on, on Which, the... by the way, will happen on my birthday. Oh. I know, I might be drunk. <laughs> One of the things I wondered with the, with the whole... with the way it happened is sometimes your party... and, I mean, it's Theresa May diagnosed herself because she said it's seen as a nasty party... And there lots of your colleagues think such as yourself argue for compassionate conservatism. And I was wondering, do you think things like what happened with Fobties, if I say it right, um, right. play to the other side of the party, that it is a cold party? Yeah, absolutely. It really felt at the time. I mean, although I had enormous support from colleagues, uh, conservative colleagues, actually right from the start of the process. And I, was, I, I felt a bit sorry for some of the criticism for both Boris and Jacob, who came out very strongly in favour of this as part of the you know near completion of the argument when actually behind the scenes Boris had been talking about the the sort of pernicious nature of these machines when he was London mayor and Jacob who obviously is driven by very strong moral religious beliefs believes that you know that believed that these machines were awful as well so they'd been really supportive but I'd had enormous support from across the parliamentary spectrum but it did look like from the outs- outside that the Conservative Party was more interested in the revenue, from the duty income from these machines than they were on the impact of people's lives. And, you know, that's just the sort of thing that drives me mad. And so, yes, I'm sort of a strong supporter for greater compassion in you know, what we do and what we say in the Conservative Party. Now, just moving to the final section of this podcast, so in the present day, if we're also talking about image problems, one issue is fox hunting. Yeah. <laughs> 
something that you have spoken against. You've you've led efforts within your own party, and we've in this Tory leadership contest we've seen the issue come up again. It came up in 2017 when Theresa May personally appeared to endorse fox hunting. Last week we had Jeremy Hunt uh, suggest that he not only wanted to hold a free vote, he wanted to do it when the Tories had a majority so they could repeal the ban. We also had Boris Johnson, who you you were supporting in this leadership race, dodge the issue when he was asked by, by, by a reporter and instead talk about his Brexit plan. It's clear it's not a priority, but he hasn't said he doesn't want to do it. So I was just wondering, from your perspective, why do you think so many people in your party Party still seem to want to or at least keep the idea of repealing the fox hunting ban on the table I actually I don't think that is the case anymore I you know I, I don't particularly understand why Jeremy Hunt decided to answer the question last week it's not a priority and therefore I, I'm not quite sure that he should have answered it but what it does do is it again generates that view in the public that we the Conservative Party you know, enjoy seeing foxes, you know, ripped to shred by dogs. And and actually, I don't think people on both sides of the argument in the party actually think that there is any need for fox hunting legislation to come back into Parliament. You know, I would say from conversations that I have had that those, you know, from countryside backgrounds or those who represent rural communities, that their hunts are quite okay at the moment with the legislation as it stands and I'm probably aware that if it does come back in front of parliament not only do they not have a majority to repeal it but there would be a majority to tighten it so I think it you know it is probably best that it's not brought back to parliament um when we when David Cameron um had the fox hunting vote sort of kind of on the agenda I had a list uh, in my office which I still have although some of the names won't be relevant anymore, but um, I had a list of about 90 colleagues who would either vote against or abstain on uh, fox hunting. There was no way that that would have been successful. I mean, the SNP claimed credit for it, not coming towards the House, but I can absolutely guarantee you there would have been enough Tory MPs to not have made any changes whatsoever. Now... Lighter, perhaps, but the parliamentary football team, which you mentioned in the introduction. Now, you coached a girls' football team before you were an MP. And we've also had the Lionesses do very well recently within the Football Cup. But we also had the parliamentary football team who were in France recently, where you broke a record. We did. Um, we went and joined in an equal playing field initiative to not only try and break a Guinness World Record for the largest continuous five-a-side football match, but also to highlight inequalities in uh, women's sport around the world, of which there are still many. There was a group of us. We played uh, for an hour in 40-degree French heat wave, which was pretty tough going. And then we did an MP's panel afterwards with women from around the world, which was just amazing, really you know, kind of hot when we'd see that there were, it's real appetite now to change people's perceptions about women's sport. Do you think public opinion has changed now in football? Or do, you, do you think there is still some way to go when it comes to women's football? Well, there's always some way to go. <laughs> um, but I think actually public perception has changed enormously. I mean, I was fortunate enough to see the Lionesses play in a semi-final against China in Montreal four years ago. And barely anyone knew that the World Cup was going on, even though the BBC had it on Red Button and, and I think in the semi-final also had it on terrestrial TV. But, you know, it didn't really register. This time around, the girls have got their own kit. 
And that sounds a ridiculous thing to highlight, but they finally got their own female fitted kit rather than an oversized men's kit. We had an official Panini sticker album for the Women's World Cup for the first time ever. Every game was shown you know, live on BBC Terrestrial TV. The broadcasters are reporting it. The newspapers are reporting. Even the spectator is talking about it. You know, there is like, you know, a real sea change, I think, or you know, real shifting gear in terms of discussing women's football. Now, on women's football, there was a photo taken in the chamber, uh, I think, with you all posing with the football, which was slightly controversial not because of the women's football but because you're not supposed to take photos in the chamber already in parliament and but lots of mps now flout this rule do you think it's time the rules were updated that's not really what we got told okay. off for the photo we sort of got permission for i say sort of loosely <laughs> i mean that we did ask we did, did you wait for a reply we we didn't necessarily ask if we could speak sit in the speaker's chair which was an absolute no-no and got very told off for that what level of discipline did you guys receive well we just kind of got a stern email the next day but the thing that really got us into trouble was Hannah Bardell our SNP colleague doing keepy uppies in the chamber you actually see in the video me walking away from it so you know goody two shoes Tracy did not do that but never mind we still got all completely and utterly bollard and had to write a letter of apology to the speaker who we have now made president of our football team in order to you know really cement that apology that's, and, a, that's a good way to deal with it so, yeah. so he's he's taken it in good spirits yeah i mean we, he loves us now i don't think that means that we're going to be allowed to play football in the chamber but we at least know next time to ask properly yeah. just beg for forgiveness never yeah, ask exactly me. that's my view as well <laughs> the final thing is you have an allotment or you leash you used to i still do yeah now there's legend has it there is a parliamentary mp secret allotment whatsapp I, group i'm not Can allowed you... to talk about that but it's like the ultimate so, rules of the the allotment group is so don't talk you, about the allotment <laughs> i will take jeremy corbyn is not on the allotment whatsapp group um but it is basically you know an opportunity to brag mainly about harvests and you know talk about white fly than anything to do with brexit you mentioned all the good advice you've got uh, from from your colleagues but one thing we have been asking people on this podcast is what is the worst advice you've ever been given oh i don't know <laughs> gosh uh, i mean you probably ignored it but yeah probably yeah d- 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 i i guess you know the worst advice was if you vote against government you won't be a minister (laughs) or please don't resign no regrets (laughs) thanks tracy thank you thanks for listening and if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any other many podcasts please do get in touch just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk